Ave, and welcome to When in Rome. And now, cue the theme music. When in Rome is a podcast about place and space in the Roman Empire. This is episode LXXII, Cloaca Maxima. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Dr. Gillian Shepherd, director of the Trendle Center at La Trobe University. The Cloaca Maxima is the great sewer of Rome, a tad smelly but highly functional. It funneled water and waste, increasing health and sanitation, and earned the admiration for its importance to the people. Here's Gillian Shepherd. How's that? Nutshell? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. 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 Okay. First yeah. time, I think, ever that I've done a uh, live intro in front of the talent. So. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Cloaca Maxima. What is it more than I said in that intro? Well, the Cloaca Maxima is really an absolutely stupendous creation. And you see in both ancient texts and modern ones, admiration for this extraordinary feat of engineering that the Romans undertook. Mm. And it essentially drained Rome and, in fact, continues to drain Rome. Parts of it are still functional. And that's one of the difficulties in studying it and, indeed, restoring it, is uh, getting into a functioning sewer. But it really made an enormous difference to the sanitation in Rome and the general lifestyle, I suppose, by removing waste and also excess water from what otherwise might have become a rather swampy area. Mm. It's quite a weird, I'm not going to call it monument. It's it's a it's a Roman structure. It's a functional building that we're concentrating on this for this episode. One is it's it's not visible and it's not grand. It's not monumental. It's a functional sewer that is under the ground of Rome. But, you know, when you think about it, this thing predates the Republic of Rome. So we're talking 600 BC, so, you know, 2,600 years old, still functioning properly, still doing its job. And the difference that it made to the city of Rome, you can't really calculate something like that. It must have changed things enormously. Well, yes, it it would have. And in fact, I'd argue it is really monumental, at least in its final state. Yeah, but you're a concrete groupie. Well, I I am, but there's (laughs) lots of gorgeous stone barrel vaulting in there as well. But the thing is colossal. Over three metres wide and over three metres high, Mm. Pliny famously said that you could take a wagon loaded with hay through it. And it goes on for a very considerable extent. And Architecturally, it's it's really quite stunning. And the ancients actually saw it as one of Rome's greatest achievements. Mm. Because it was very uniquely Roman, wasn't Mm, it? Absolutely. But also, for example, Dionysius of Halicarnassus, who uh, is writing about Rome in the Augustan period, so late 1st century BCE, early 1st century CE, He writes, the extraordinary greatness of the Roman Empire manifests itself above all in three things, the aqueducts, the paved roads, and the construction of the drains. Mm. And I suppose perhaps today we take sewage kind of more or less for granted, and we only notice it when it doesn't work. True. But in antiquity, one would have been much more aware of that sort of stuff because infrastructure didn't necessarily exist. And so... 
enormous drains that actually massively improved everyday life in a major city like Rome yeah. were really a big thing and very complicated from the engineering point of view. So one of the things that, you know, what did the Romans ever do for us? The sewage system should be right up there by the sounds of it. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, there are a lot of studies um, in the 19th century looking at the Cloaca Maxima, learning lessons from it for modern European cities. Because, Mm. of course, that's the period in the 19th century when you have industrialisation, you have European cities with much greater populations, public hygiene and health is becoming a real issue. A lot of cities are being redesigned, modernised, new road layouts and so on. Yeah. And they need to start thinking about the sewage systems. Yeah. Okay, okay. So let's delve into the history. I've I've said already 2000... Uh, 600 years old. So we're talking, you know, 600 BCE. This predates the Republic of Rome. This is back when kings were kings. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're going back into those legendary kings of Rome. And our sources attribute really the development of the sewers to two Etruscan kings. One is Tarquinius Priscus, who was the fifth king of Rome, and the other is the seventh king of Rome, Tarquinius uh, Superbus. And between them, they seem to have sorted out the drainage system of Rome. Yeah. So we get an account of these works in Livy. Livy first of all says about Tarquinius Priscus, he says he drained the lower parts of the city about the Forum and the other valleys between the hills, which were too flat to carry off the floodwaters easily by means of sewers, so made as to slope down towards the Tiber. Mm. So what Livy's talking about there is the Velabrum, which is the low area that connects the Forum Boarum with the Forum Romanum. And then you've got the Capitoline and Palatine Hills either side of that, but also referring to these other sort of low-lying areas uh, along the Tiber, uh, around the area of Rome, which were also prone to all this flooding. Yeah. And there's some evidence that certainly the Velabrum was actually built up. There was reclamation of land. Dirt, rubble, whatever was brought in to raise the level of the land to help stop this flooding. But putting in these sewers also controlled all the drainage and so forth mm-hmm. as well. And then Livy goes on and he attributes the building of the Clarca Maxima specifically to Tarquinius Superbus. He talks about how Superbus used the plebs, the ordinary people, to build monuments and structures around Rome and they resented having to be employed on, on the sewer. And Livy says... The plebeians felt less abused at having to build with their own hands the temples of the gods than they did when they came to be transferred to other tasks also, which, while less in show, were rather more laborious. I mean the erection of the seats in the circus, so he's talking about the circus maximus there, and the construction underground of the great sewer as a receptacle for all the off-scourings of the city. Mm. So that's a nice way of describing the waste of Rome. And he goes on, two works for which the new splendour of these days has scarcely been able to produce a match. So Livy recognises mm-hmm. the importance of this structure, but it sounds like the plebs who were building it didn't like getting their hands dirty. Is that what I, they'd no, rather I, work on the kind of grander uh, monuments? Yes. Sounds like it was pretty much enforced labour. Yeah. But it must have been extremely hard work because they're going underground to build this sewer. But ultimately, 
dare I say, the construction of Major Sewer probably improved their life a lot more than um, the temples to the gods did. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's nice that you can be picky. Well, not really. You can be picky about uh, what forced labour you're undertaking as well. I guess, you know, the plebs are going to grumble. Oh, definitely. <laughs> they always do that. We've got a later account on how this construction went down from Pliny, don't we? Yes. So again, it involves the plebs, the ordinary people who were used as labourers. Pliny gives an account of the way um, Tarquinius Priscus solved problems. He comes up with a story that he says is more worthy of record because the best known historians have overlooked it. So he might have been I, referring I Livy. Livy, yeah, <laughs> yeah, referring to Livy there. And it's interesting actually, he says that because of course this is our great problem is that Historians are always overlooking the things we want to hear about. But Pliny goes on that Tarquinius Priscus was using the plebs, the common folk, as his labourers. They were becoming absolutely exhausted by this. And he says they were seeking to escape from the exhaustion by committing suicide wholesale. Well, that's no good if your workforce is, is killing itself on the job. The king devised a strange remedy, which was never contrived except on that one occasion, which is just as well because it's pretty nasty. Tarquinius Priscus crucified the bodies of all those who had died by their own hands, leaving them to be gazed at by their fellow citizens and also torn to pieces by beasts and birds of prey. Mm. The sense of shame which was so characteristic of the Romans as a nation and has so often restored a desperate situation on the battlefield came to their aid. But at this time, it imposed on them at the very moment when they blushed for their honour, since they felt ashamed while alive under the illusion that they would feel equally ashamed when dead. It's an odd solution, but it's also perhaps a vehicle for Pliny in some ways to represent the antiquity of the sense of Roman pride and honour, I guess. Yes, um, uh, but don't address the concerns of the working, <laughs> the working conditions. Yes, yes, yes. And, <laughs> and, and in fact, actually, <laughs> Tarquinius Superbus apparently had a rather sort of similarly disdainful view of the plebs, despite all the work they did, mm. because in fact Livy had said that, you know, after the plebs had done all this work on the sewers and the cloaca maxima, the king felt that a populace which had now no work to do was only a burden to the city. He wished, moreover, by sending out settlers to extend the frontiers of his dominion. He, he then thought, them. no, I don't want all these plebs around me in the city, mm. and turfed them out. Okay, wow. So. Sounds like a lovely king. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about then its name, Cloaca Maxima, which you know has a significance. Uh, and I, I shouldn't be surprised about this, but there is a god related to this. Yes, there's always a god related <laughs> to a Roman thing. This is the goddess Cloacina, which might be a goddess of Etruscan origin, possibly, mm. related to ideas of cleanliness and health and so on. But by the time we really see her, she's become attached to Venus for reasons that aren't very clear. But we see her in the form of Venus Cloacina. And in fact, there was a little shrine erected to her right above the Cloaca Maxima in front of the Basilica Amelia yeah. in, in the Forum. When I say little shrine, it's sort of a couple of metres wide. It's circular. It's like a sort of a bandstand. We see this illustrated on coins sometimes okay. too. The plinth, is that the right word? The foundation of it is still there. Still there, yes. Yeah. You can see the circular outline. But it would it. have been statue and what have you. Yes, there. yes. Okay, and that's directly above the Cloaca Maxima. So if you dug yes. down, you'd hit it. Yep. So in the early days, this was an open-aired sewer? Well, that's something which has been debated a bit more just recently. 
it's generally assumed that the Clerker Maxima basically follows the line of original stream, yeah. which would have been the natural drainage system from the hills down into that Velabrum area. And, and that would make sense because obviously any drainage system wants to work with the natural topography. It's often been assumed that it was first converted to an open sort of canal sewer system. Now, some more recent work suggests that, in fact, it was closed over Mm. as early as the 6th century BC, or perhaps at least partially closed over, because we've only got relatively small sections of what appear to be these very early stages of it. And the evidence there seems to be of a wide channel, a bit over three metres wide, that was divided by a median wall into two sections. And then there's evidence in the extant Clarker Maxima of corbel vaulting. So that's a type of vaulting which involves a cantilever method where each piece of stone or brick or whatever it is sort of sticks out over the one below it. So you get a sort of a stepped arch. Oh, yes, yes. Yep. Yeah, and yep. it's not as strong as a proper barrel vault arch with a keystone, but it's still pretty strong. Okay, so this is early technology and early building methods that we're talking about. Yes, absolutely. It seems to have gone at least partially over to enclose it, and it might not have been a full corbel vault. You then might have had flat slabs over Mm. the top. But there is now some evidence to suggest that it was enclosed at a much earlier period than has previously been thought, though there was also a lot of work done on it in the 3rd and 2nd centuries BCE. Okay. So uh, what route does it follow then? And is there a significance to the route at all? Well, I think the route is still really looking at the natural topography. It's very blocked up in its sort of upper sections. Yeah. And in fact, speleologists and other cave explorers have to go down to have Mm. a look at this. But it's been traced back now as far as modern Via Cavour. So right through the Roman Forum, through this area of the Velabrum where the Forum Boarium is, and then it pops out into the Tiber. Yeah. And it takes quite a wiggly route. And in part, that seems to have been due to subsequent alterations to it as other buildings were put in place. Okay. So a fair bit of work seems to have been done on it under Augustus. Pliny, in fact, attributes a lot of work on the sewers to Marcus Agrippa, Augustus's right-hand man. Augustus seems to have, to some degree, divvied up the jobs in Rome and given himself the sort of more glamorous ones, like zhuzhing up the old temples and so forth, Mm -hmm. whereas Agrippa got the really practical, important things like the water supply and the sewers. Okay. Which, again, ultimately probably made a much bigger difference Mm. to everyday life in Rome. That's perhaps when more of the vaulting and so forth was put in, a fair bit of work done then. But then other alterations also under Vespasian and Domitian and perhaps a few others as well. So in particular with Vespasian, who puts up the Temple of Parcus, the Temple of Peace, there seems to be a diversion there. To it was in the way. Out of the way. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Domitian starts uh, another big temple in that area, which was never built, but the Clarica Maxima ends up going right under what is now the Forum of Nerva. Mm. So that's completed right at the end of the first century CE. The Forum of Nerva, its drainage goes directly into the Clarica Maxima, which is below it. All right. And you do get over the years 
tributaries? There are lots of other sewers, at least 11 other sewers, mm. but also there's some evidence for openings that perhaps related to private houses or structures along the way. Okay. So it's collecting a lot as it goes. Yeah. A couple of questions then about the route that it's taking. One is that there seems to be areas of the cloaca maxima that would be much easier on the structure and the water flow if it went in a different way. So it's, it's like it's route is being maintained despite the difficulty? It's hard to reconstruct it because we've got to know exactly perhaps what was above it. Yeah. You know, maybe the area wasn't accessible. Maybe there was just some other reason for preserving the main route. So there are sections that are disused, you yeah. know, where it was rerouted as well. Mm. I can't help but think, you know, there could be like religious significance to the way that it's going in some ways. But the other interesting thing about that is there seems to be a connection with what is now referred to as the Arch of Janus, which is plonked down right on top of the Cloaca Maxima route to the extent where it can't be a coincidence. Mm. Yeah, yep, yep. But we don't know why that is? No, not exactly. So the Arch of Janus in its current form at any rate dates to the early 4th century mm. and it's this quadrifons archway. It doesn't seem to be any sort of triumphal arch. It perhaps provided a grand entrance to the Forum Boarium, some form of, of shelter. And yes, it is plonked right over the Cloaca Maxima. And then when you've got things like the Shrine of Venus Cloacina as well, perhaps, yes, you've got these above-ground markers mm. that are reminding people of the significance of what's going on underground. So we've talked a bit about how it's been maintained over time. Did you want to get nerdy about cements and blocks of stone and things like that? Is there anything? That... Um, <laughs> well, no, probably not too nerdy. I mean, it's extremely complex construction. Mm. There's some superb barrel vaulting in there. There's evidence of the bottom of it as well, particularly the sort of bit that's attributed to Domitian of really gorgeous travertine blocks that have sort of bonded together with sections of bronze. There are other areas, perhaps the more later ones, where you've got tanking using a, a method known as sort of coccia pesto, which is kind of Roman concrete with mushed up bits of brick and other stuff in it. Aggregate. Aggregate. Coccia pesto is actually, it's a method that's often used for floors and things like that as well. It's really tough. It's it's waterproof and yeah. everything else. And so you get the sort of some of the less glamorous sections there as well. Mm. But the best built and best preserved sections with this beautiful barrel vaulting in stone are just quite spectacular. So that Pliny quote that you read out before, is actually part of a more extensive quote. And what he wrote gives us a, a kind of good indication of what the people of Rome thought about the Cloaca Maxima. The asterisk here being if they did think about it at all. So Pliny seems to be, you know, quite a... Pliny's he, a big fan of it, actually. Yeah, and, and again, I sort of come back to maybe the idea that the ancient admiration for sewers was much greater than the modern in general. Mm. So Pliny describes the flow of water through the city. He says, through the city there flow seven rivers meeting in one channel. And, and he really gets dramatic about these. These rushing downwards like mountain torrents are constrained to sweep away and remove everything in their path. And when they are thrust forward by an additional volume of rainwater, they batter the bottom and sides of the sewers. Sometimes the backwash of the Tiber floods the sewers and makes its way along them upstream. This was still a continuous problem, actually. Yeah. Even after the construction of all this, there was still a problem with, with the Tiber flooding. 
Then the raging flood waters meet head on within the sewers and even so the unyielding strength of the fabric resists the strain. Mm. So these are really tough sewers. In the streets above, massive blocks of stone are dragged along and yet the tunnels do not cave in. They are pounded by falling buildings which collapse of their own accord or are brought crashing to the ground by fire. But no, it's still fine. Even earthquakes. The ground is shaken by earth tremors, but in spite of all, for 700 years from the time of Tarquinius Priscus, the channels have remained well nigh impregnable. Mm. They keep on working. Yeah, um, yeah. There's really tremendous admiration for this. And in fact, elsewhere, when he's talking about the work that Agrippa oversaw on the sewers during the period of Augustus, he says, of the public sewers too, a work more stupendous than any. As mountains had to be pierced for their construction. That's perhaps part of the difficulty is, is you have to tunnel and have to go underground. Well, it's still complicated today, but it's particularly complicated for the Romans. Mm. And then he says, like the hanging city, which he recently mentioned, he's talking about Thebes in Egypt there, navigation had to be carried on beneath Rome, an event which happened in the Edlar ship of Marcus Agrippa. Okay, yeah. yeah. So You've got to find your way and make sure you're tunnelling in the right directions exactly. and around the right monuments. And yeah. yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it's really hard. He's talking about hanging cities. Rome sort of sits, literally hangs on this mm. network, this almost this spider's web mm. of sewers beneath it. We've said that this is a network that is in continual use throughout the span of the Roman Empire, but even beyond, isn't it? Yes, it keeps on being used. It falls into disrepair, though, silted up. Bits of it break down. It doesn't work nearly so well. But its value was still obviously recognised because by the time we get to the 17th century, the Cardinal Chamberlain, the treasurer of the Church of the Holy See, is levying taxes specifically for the maintenance of the Cloaca Maxima. Yeah. So it maintains this importance as a way of keeping Rome drier and cleaner than it would otherwise be. And how much of it is of interest now to modern scholarship. The Cloaca Maxima did get a lot of early excavations and exploration during the 1800s, didn't it? Yes, absolutely. There was renewed interest in that. And that was really when archaeology as a discipline was really getting going. Mm. And there was a lot of work going on in Rome, particularly towards the end of the 19th century, uh, with a very famous Italian archaeologist, Rodolfo Lanciani, and he was particularly interested in the topography of ancient Rome. Mm. And the Cloaca Maxima, obviously, is an important part of that. And he was full of admiration for the Cloaca Maxima. Yeah. He says, there is no doubt that the work is simply wonderful. <laughs> An immense sewer built 25 centuries ago on unstable ground under enormous practical difficulties, which still answers well its purpose – is a work to be classed among the greatest triumphs of engineering. Wow. I feel like that's a much more modern version of what Pliny said. So I feel, yeah. I feel that that's a midway point between you and Pliny. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> so I'm hoping I'm converting you back to the fact that Clarke Maxima is a most magnificent thing and ought to be called a monument. <laughs> so where can you see if a tourist has, look, let's be honest, seen everything else in Rome and decides I want to go and check out the asshole of the city. <laughs> yeah. Can I say that? It's, my, it's my podcast. I'm well, saying. yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, that's where all the effluent comes yeah. out of Rome. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, where can they go and see it? Yeah. Well, it's actually really easy. 
So if you go and visit the Forum Bar in Rome, which obviously you should do anyway, because mm. there are all sorts of great things to see there. If you're at the Round Temple in the Forum Boarium, so that's the Temple of Hercules Victor or Hercules Oliverius. Hercules question mark. Question mark. Hercules question mark. Exactly. Anyway, something to do with Hercules. Then if you cross the modern road, which is a pretty busy one towards the Tiber, so be careful, and walk over the modern Ponte Palatino, you don't have to go very far, probably not even halfway, just Turn and look back and down to your left at to the, the ba- Tiber. At the bank of the river. At the bank, yeah. at, yes, at Lungo Tevere. Yeah. And you will see the outfall of the Cloaca Maxima right there. That was Dr. Gillian Shepherd, director of the Trendle Centre at La Trobe University, and you have been listening to When in Rome. This podcast is funded by kind listener support. In particular, I'd like to send my thanks and a nave to Michael McGinn in the United States. You can like When in Rome on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow us as well on Twitter. Gillian is at Lady Trendle, I'm at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. Finally, a shout out to Ollie Julian the composer of the music that you're hearing in this podcast. It is the theme music to the ITV show Plebs from Rise Comedy. That's it today for When in Rome. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic. And thanks for listening.